Uh, we will now be hearing from Ruth Feldman first and then Ruth Reese, um, and then we'll be breaking for lunch hopefully around 11.15. Hello, everyone. Oops. I'm Ilan. I'm the co-vice president of the society. We are honored to come as our next speaker, Rabbi Daniel Feldman. Rabbi Feldman is a Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz, an instructor in the Sai Sim School of Business. He received his smicha from Ritz, where he was a fellow of the Bella and Harry Wexner Kolel Elyon. Rabbi Feldman is the author of many books, as well as five volumes of Talmudic essays entitled Bina Basfarim. Rabbi Feldman is the co-editor of more than 10 volumes of Talmudic essays in Jewish thought. He serves on the editorial board of Tradition and has published in Jewish Action, the Orthodox Forum, and the Oxford Handbook of Judaism and Economics. Rabbi Feldman is also the rabbi of Orosabia of Tinek. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Feldman, who will address us on the halakhic perspectives on abortion. Thank you so much, Yuan, and uh, thank you to all the organizers. Uh, my purpose here is not to focus on the practical halacha. I'm going to let Mari Barabi Rabbi Rishlita talk about that afterwards and get more into the practicalities. What I'd like to do for a few minutes is to frame somewhat of the issue from a little bit of a philosophical perspective and a little bit of a source perspective. Breud focused heavily on the question of whether abortion is murder or not. And of course, that is certainly the central issue. And it ties into a number of other points. And what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is just consider where the different positions come from and why it is that, as Rabbi Boyd noted, there certainly is such a divergence of views about this fundamental question about how to categorize what's going on. So where do those views come from? And to some extent, it's a textual question. There are sources that indicate one way or another and that are subject to extensive debate. And to some extent, I believe, even within the postkim, it's also a philosophical question. And just to try to frame that a little bit, to give it a little bit of a context, and then as far as the practicalities, Reese will give us more perspective as to how to apply that. So the question of whether it's viewed as murder or not from a textual perspective comes from a number of sources which indicate in various directions. And that's a big part of the debate. On the one hand, there are a number of sources that would lead one to the conclusion that abortion is not murder or is not fully murder, as we'll try to explain a little bit as well. And first and foremost, perhaps, is the fact that when it comes to murder, so the halacha tells us that this has a rule of yehareg valyavor, that even if someone tells you that the only way to save your own life is to murder an innocent person, one's not permitted to do that. And yet it's very clear without any dispute that that's not the halacha when it comes to abortion. And the Mishnah states quite clearly, and everyone after that agrees, it's not a question of debate, that when the mother's life is at risk, so then an abortion 
presumably must be performed in order to save her life. So therefore, that seems to indicate pretty objectively that it doesn't subject itself to a status of Yeharig Valyavor, of a concept where one has to give up his life rather than violate, in this case her life, rather than violate. So therefore, from that perspective, it certainly seems to place it in a context that is not murder. And in fact, the Mishnah also states that if the mother is herself liable for the death penalty, if she's waiting to be executed and she's pregnant, so the Mishnah says we don't wait for her to give birth in order to delay the execution to allow that to happen, but rather she is executed immediately, including the fetus with that, and apparently also indicating that there is not an act of murder involved. There are other indications that also seem like that, and therefore, coming from that perspective, it's also the language of a number of the Rishonim, the fact that not just it's not Yeharag Valyavur, but it's also not subject to other punishments that are associated with murder. So that also seems to indicate, at least from a textual perspective, that it's not murder that we're dealing with. On the other hand, there are a number of other sources that perhaps indicate in the other direction. And, for example, there is the fact, as we've already touched upon as well, that when it comes to Bnei Noach, when it comes to non-Jews, so the Gemara says, and this is perhaps the clearest statement in the Gemara in the other direction, that Bnei Noach neragala ubrim, that as far as non-Jews are concerned, that abortion is considered to be a capital offense. So on the surface, the impression one would get is if it's a capital offense, so then that sounds like it would be murder if it deserves such a punishment. That is the way it sounds, however, it's a little bit complicated by a number of factors. First of all, the general default punishment for all violations of the Noahide Code is Misa. It's a whole discussion why that is and how exactly that's applied. So it's a little bit hard to discern from that alone that it necessarily constitutes murder because it's associated with that punishment. On the other hand, if it's not, then we have to figure out where it comes from. Because if the assumption is that we start with seven Noahide commandments, six prohibitions, and one mitzvah of din, so therefore it has to fall under one of the existing categories, so it certainly would seem like it would be at least under that broad heading, if not necessarily that specific prohibition. Well, that's itself a little bit of an ambiguous point, because the seven Noahide principles are indeed treated in some sources like principles as ideas that have broad headings and that have included within them many concepts and principles of different levels of severity, so it's hard to discern absolutely from that point that even for B'nai Noach it is considered to be murder, but it's an understandable position to take. In addition to that, as we've already mentioned, there is the position of the Rambam. The position of the Rambam is the subject of much analysis as well, and when it comes to the question of the point that we mentioned before, that the Talmud is quite clear that one does perform an abortion in order to save the life of the mother. So the question is, why is that? So a number of the Rishonim, such as Rashi, have the phrase that love nefeshu, that this is not a nefesh, how exactly you translate nefesh is itself a loaded term, something along the, something along the sense of being not a human life, which word there is the emphasis, human or life is also itself a little bit of a discussion, but apparently not one who is entitled to the full protection 
protection that would be afforded by a prohibition of murder. But the language of the Rambam in Hilchot Shrotzeach Vishmira Sanefesh is different, and the Rambam has a phrase which also appears in the Gemara, but it appears in a different context. It's a little bit unclear how it got in this sentence specifically, but the Rambam writes that the reason this procedure is performed to save the life of the mother is because the fetus is kirodev. The fetus is treated like a pursuer. So that could lead to the conclusion that the reason it's permitted is only because there is a rodev concept applied here. And in general, if somebody is being pursued by another, one is permitted and perhaps required to kill that pursuer, and that's not considered to be murder. So even though we say Yeharig Valyavor applies to murder, that we're not allowed to kill an innocent person in order to save our own life, but we are allowed to kill somebody who's coming to pursue us. So this language of the Rambam seems to suggest that it's only because of that, only because we have this idea that the baby is treated like a rodef that allows the abortion to take place. So that is a widely cited source. There is some controversy about that. That interpretation is the interpretation of Reb Chaim Brisker. Uh, my father, Zechon Levracha, wrote a book about this, where this book was quoted by the court in the original Roe v. Wade decision, where he notes there that there are at least 13 interpretations in the Achronim of what the Rambam is getting at. And Reb Chaim is one interpretation. Uh, Rav Unterman, chief rabbi of Israel at the time, had a similarly strict interpretation that was based on a different understanding, but also yielded the understanding that it would only be permitted in the case of absolute risk of life to the mother. But there were a number of other interpretations as well. And not going to go through all of them, but some of them included the idea that the Rambam's emphasizing Rodef not to say that it would only be permitted because of the Rodef principle, but to recognize the fact that it's certainly not nothing, that it's certainly not something to look at casually, and therefore in this case, because there is a comparison to Rodef, so that's what's justifying it here. But it doesn't necessarily carry the implication that that's the only way to justify it. Others see it as coming from a different direction, perhaps the idea that just as one is obligated to kill the Rodef in order to save one's life if that's the only way to do it, so so to here there is an obligation, and others saw additional interpretations that maybe it's coming here to teach other principles that are connected to the Rodef idea that would also be applied in this case, but not necessarily to say that it's only because the idea of Rodef is present that allows this abortion to take place. So there is somewhat of a debate, even within the view of the Rambam, and as how to interpret his statement, and that's itself a extensive discussion. And together with that, there are a few other sources that perhaps do give the context of murder. For example, there is a discussion in the Rishonim whether we would be Mechal Shabbos to save a fetus. So on the one hand, in general, that is the tradition, already going back to the Talmud, but a number of the Rishonim take the assumption that that's because most of the time, if there's some kind of a risk to the fetus, so there's probably a risk to the mother as well. So in general, whatever steps are being taken could be justified by the fact that we are working to save the mother's life. And the Rush has a commentary, doesn't understand why anyone's spending any time talking about this, because it's quite clear that there's going to be a risk to the mother, so therefore it's not something to even analyze. But if one could separate out the issues and find a situation where there's clearly no risk to the mother, and yet there's a risk to the fetus, so there there is a discussion as well as to whether one would be Mechal Shabbos. And the position of the Bahag is that we are Mechal Shabbos in order to save the life purely of a fetus, even if we knew the mother's life is not at risk. 
And while that's a debate, but it's an interesting perspective, which seems to suggest that if we're being Mechal Shabbos in order to do this, that it is a question of life or death that is equated to murder. Although that itself is also somewhat of a complicated question, and we find this issue coming up in end-of-life care as well, where it seems like somewhat of a paradox that there are situations where it's not necessarily clear that we're obligated to pursue a certain route in order to extend someone's life, and yet, if the decision is to do so, we are Mechal Shabbos for that. So the idea that we would only be Mechal Shabbos for something that is an absolute, and it would be murder not to do it, is not exactly so clear, and that's also somewhat of a debate, but it does contribute to the impression that we're dealing certainly with a very high-stakes issue here, if not absolute murder. When it comes also to the Rambam's usage of Rodef, there are also some who suggest, Reb Chaim Moser has a tshuva along these lines, that it has to do with the context of the Mishnah, that the Mishnah is talking about a woman who is in the process of labor. In other words, it is at a very advanced stage of pregnancy, and that may also not clearly reflect on what the status would be at earlier stages of pregnancy. So there is a lot of back and forth as far as how to understand some of the basic sources here, and that's a big part of the discussion as to whether or not we are dealing with murder. And then if the question is, if indeed it's not murder, as many do understand, so then where does the prohibition come from? And there are a number of possible sources. Some suggest that it is an active negation of the positive mitzvah of peruvu, of having children. There are those who understand it as being connected to the prohibition of chavala, where the Torah prohibits inflicting a wound and we understand that to mean that even to voluntarily accept a wound is to cause a wound on oneself is also prohibited and there there's a different range of what allows for it but it's also something that's not a casual issue it's also something that's not permitted without greater justification and there are those who understand that even if it's not termed as murder fully it's something in the category of murder in a lesser status in halacha we have a concept called Chatzishir, where sometimes you have a prohibition, for example, we're not allowed to eat non-kosher food, not allowed to eat pork, and if you have a certain amount, if you have the kazais, it's subject to a punishment. And yet, the Talmud says that even if one were to have less than that full measurement, there is still a prohibition, even without the punishment. So that's called chatzishir, it's a technical term, and there are some who apply it, it seems a little bit unusual in this context as well, that maybe what we have here is something which is in the category of murder, but doesn't have the entire severity of murder, and has aspects of it without all of the consequences, including without having the consequence of Yaharid Valyavari, wouldn't necessarily understand that it applies even at the risk of one's life. Uh, their aim, for example, understood that there's a category called hasra, suffolk, that you can't apply a punishment if you don't know in advance that the full weight of the prohibition is going to be relevant. And here also we don't know about the viability of the fetus, so perhaps there's a conceptual applicability of murder without the practical applicability. That's how some understood. And uh, you do find, for example, those who use the phrase like the chuvas ayyid de that this is something that is mimayit This is something that reduces the image of God. God was, man was created in God's image, and this reduces the image of God in this world, which is the broader concept of murder, and that there is an aspect of that here that is relevant. So that's a part of a range of views. Some seeing it as a prohibition that's not connected to murder at all, that has its own sources, perhaps even less than that we find in some of the Rishonim, and some saying that perhaps really theoretically it is murder, but 
because of some important practical differences, it doesn't have the practical consequences, which could be very significant, because that also could still open a good possibility of options for when it may be permitted without necessarily having to go to the status of rodef, the status of pursuer, in order to permit it. So I'd just like to say for a few more minutes, in addition to coming from the perspective of sources, which is certainly how we determine halacha in all of its contexts, but there is still the basic question of where do these opinions come from. To a certain extent, they come from interpreting statements in the Talmud, but there's also a philosophical basis behind it, as we see evident in some of the sources and in some of the need to interpret the sources in the context of trying to make them make sense and to understand from a philosophical concept. I think this is crucially important as well. So I've already discussed the question of how we should interact with American society and legal aspects in terms of the differences between halacha and secular perspectives, it's also important to appreciate that the way the conversation is sometimes framed, it's sometimes presented as if the entire objection that one would have to abortion purely is religious, and that it only comes from religious dogma, and if one doesn't have this context, so then one wouldn't have these objections, or one certainly wouldn't have these level of objections. I think that's an unfair way to frame it, because the question, for example, this primary question of, is it murder or not, is a question which presents itself regardless of your religious background, and regardless of whether or not there is a religious background. We have a prohibition of murder in secular law, and the question of who does it apply to, and who gets the protection of this prohibition and the fundamental question of what is considered to be a human life that is entitled to that protection and that society has to be wary of is a fundamental question that's going to apply regardless of your religious background and regardless of whether or not there is any religious background. It's a question that has to be examined and that's a part of the issue both within and beyond the sources. And just to quickly try to frame that a little bit, so when it comes to the questions of morality in general, there is a big debate as to what drives morality, why are some things moral and why are some things not moral. Uh, Jonathan Haidt in his book Religious Minds popularized the concept that in some contexts and some cultures, so we only look at the question of harm when we consider issues of morality, but in many other cultures there are many other factors that contribute to how we determine morality. And we phrase it a little bit differently when applying in the context of halacha, but I think this applies in other contexts as well, that there are essentially three major reasons why we would have a moral objection to something. And they, in some sense, connect to the general question of formalism and consequentialism, that on the one hand, there are things that we have moral objections to because they cause immediate harm. That would be a consequentialist approach. And there are things that we object to because of the values that they challenge, and that would be more of a formalist approach, that we believe that we are committed to certain values and to upholding them, and that there's a conflict to these values when this action is taken. And leave in the middle, there's a, a third perspective, which is also somewhat of a formalist idea that we obey rules, regardless of looking at the immediate consequence, but it's really also a form of consequentialism. It's the notion that there's a long-term consequentialism, and even if this case in front of us doesn't necessarily have the same degree of harm, but over the long perspective, there will be harm to society and there will be harm to individuals, and that's also a part of what concerns us when it comes to morality. And I think in this case, there's all three aspects to consider, and how exactly that's evaluated is a part of the question. So we find 
that when it comes to murder specifically in general, murder of adults, murder of people who've been born, so the Rambam highlights that there is a tremendous consequentialist impact, that this does harm to the world more than any other prohibition, that in the Torah we have many prohibitions, and some of them have more severe punishments associated with them, but as far as the impact on the world, so there is a terrible impact of murder, that's a part of it, and yet we also find that there's a formalist prohibition, and that's perhaps why we have the idea of treating it as an absolute, as Yehareg Val Yavor. So the question of where exactly murder fits in is important to ascertain. Why is it that murder is so bad? Why is it that murder is morally objectionable? And how to understand that is going to be relevant also to look at the question of abortion and whether or not it overrides that or whether or not it overlaps with that. So we find from all three of those perspectives issues to consider. So on the one hand, what about the immediate harm? Right now, am I harming somebody by performing this abortion? So on the one hand, so it is connects to murder in the sense that there will no longer be a life that will be lived by this fetus. So the same way a born person has their life ended if they are murdered, so, so too this life will never take place. So the question of whether that is entitled to the same kind of protection as murder in general is a part of the analysis. So one could say on the one hand, consequentially, it's similar that there is the same cutting short of a future life. But on the other hand, right now, being that the status is different, perhaps that's a reason not to apply the full stricture of murder. So that's, I think, a part of the analysis, and that's also going to lead to some very different conclusions depending on what the circumstance is. There's a reference to viability in the question of abortion, but it's noteworthy that you find the word viability used in drastically different ways depending on context. So sometimes we talk about viability, we mean right now, if the baby were to be born at this moment, can the baby survive outside the mother, which is particularly jarring a little bit how it impacts because this is something that changes all the time. The more science develops and the more a baby can be sustained at an earlier time, so then that seems to change the morality of the issue, which is a little bit of a jarring concept that could be true nonetheless. So looking at viability in that sense means that we're looking at it in a very technical way, that right now this is not necessarily an act of murder because right now this is not a person who is alive like a born person, but at the same time, looking at it down the road, the consequences will be that there will not be a life that could have been had that is similar to what would have happened if one kills anybody else. On the other hand, viability is also used in a radically different way when it talks about the question of can this baby at any time lead a full life? So for example, if we were to talk about Rahman al-Asana Atesak's baby who doesn't have the potential of living beyond three or four years, so that's a radically different usage of the word viability. But one could theoretically make the case, or perhaps uh, concretely make the case, that the consequence is very different because there is no potential of a life to be lived here, and there is perhaps a technical formalist issue of murder, but maybe that's not going to be applied in the same way because it's not going to have the same kind of consequences, and that could perhaps yield a radically different conclusion depending on how one looks at that. And technically, the idea that there's a long-term formalism, that there is a formalism that represents a long-term consequentialism, so what will be the impact to society to looking at it this way? And on the other hand, the question of the value of what statement are we making, like Darye de Bailoi said, so that may yield a more technical formalist approach and may say that murder is bad because of the impact that it has on our values and the statement that it says about the importance of life and the gift of life and therefore that may also yield a different interpretation. So all of this is a part of it and I'll just close by noting that the way we frame this is crucially important for the values. And I mentioned before in my father's book 
he passed away a number of years ago, but in the past year, so I'm quoted a few times as a part of this debate, and there was an article in the New York Times a number of months ago, sometime in the past year, where it quoted my father in a way that I thought was misleading. It was used to make the point that felt Judaism is completely pro-choice. That was the thrust of the article in the New York Times. And I tried writing them a letter that they didn't print. But uh, there was, it's noteworthy that there are different headlines. The headlines are not chosen by the author of the article, usually chosen by the editors. And the online headline and the print headline were different. And I mentioned there that they were radically different, that they were very significantly different. That one of the headlines was, not all religious people oppose abortion which I thought was a very problematic way to phrase it and was not at all the thrust of the sources. It was not justified by the content of the article. The other version of the headline was a direct quote from my father's writings, and the language was, her welfare is primary, the mother's welfare is primary. So that is true. We certainly believe that, but the idea that that leads to the context of a complete pro-choice position thought was greatly misleading, and the language is tremendously significant. And this idea, which was also a point that my father emphasized and I'll close on, is that whatever position we take and however far we go in trying to create a context to allow for the many different options that exist and the many different possibilities that exist, as Ray Boyd pointed out, within Jewish law, the language of pro-choice is severely problematic. And this is something that my father emphasized, that when we permit abortions, it also comes from a pro-life perspective. It comes from the idea of emphasizing the importance of the life of the mother. And even if one interprets that very expansively, even if one interprets that to include the mental health well-being, if one interprets that to include a much broader range of what's under the rubric of that idea of welfare, it still doesn't change the fact that it's coming from a pro-life perspective, and the notion of seeing it as pro-choice, of seeing it as something which is reduced simply to a question of preference, has a tremendous impact on how we perceive these issues. So the language and the framing is crucially important, and all of this contributes to how we apply the rules practically, but also who we are as a society and how we value life, and therefore all of the details flow from that kind of framing. And I hope that's a perspective that helps us to understand just the weight of some of these issues, even given the fact that there is a very broad range of practical conclusions as far as this is applied. And I now look forward to hearing some of that practicality from Marva Rabbi Baris. Thank you, Rabbi Feldman, for the tremendously informative, thought-provoking overview. It is my distinct privilege to introduce our next speaker, Rabbi Yona Reese. Rabbi Reese is the Av Beitin of the Chicago Rabbinical Council and a Rosh Yeshiva at Reitz, where he received smicha and previously served as dean. Rabbi Reese is also the assistant Av Beitin of the Beitin of America. Rabbi Reese received his JD from Yale Law School where he served as a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal. Rabbi Reese has published numerous articles on Jewish and American law, including in Tehumen, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Law Journal. He is the author of the book Confe Yona, a compendium of essays and responsa about contemporary issues in Jewish law and Talmudic topics. May I present Rabbi Yona Reese. Good morning, and uh, I'm 
privilege to follow uh, Rabbi Boyd and Rabbi Feldman. Very much enjoyed uh, their enlightening presentations. Uh, and I think you've heard a number of the sources uh, that I'm going to allude to uh, based on their presentations, so I'll try to move through them maybe a little bit more rapidly, but mostly I want to focus on the practical implementation of what we've been discussing. How do rabbinic decisors actually deal with cases of abortion questions? How is it that we make the determination of what exactly is forbidden and what is potentially permitted in the realm of abortion? So I want to start off by presenting sort of the fundamental starting point. The starting point of any such determination is that Jewish law views abortion as fundamentally usher, it's fundamentally forbidden. We have to understand that, that unlike in secular society, where abortion might be viewed as a constitutional right, as something akin to a woman's right of privacy, a woman's right of personal uh, physical autonomy, and therefore you could do with your body whatever you want, Judaism categorically rejects that. Uh, there is an issue. It's a question of what the nature of the issue, what the nature of the prohibition is, but there's no question that there is, there is an issue. Um, and even those who are a little bit more permissive, such as the Tzitzeliezer, Rabbi Yezer Yehuda Waldenberg, don't hesitate to quote the Zohar, the passage, the Kabbalistic passage, which says that there are certain sins which banish the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence from this world, and one of them is when uh, somebody has an abortion, uh, when somebody causes a, a child inside the womb to die, because the person is destroying the handiwork of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, destroying the handiwork of God Himself. The Gemara Nida, as we know, says that there are three partners in the formation of a child. There's the father, the mother, and there is a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And therefore, you are messing around with the creation of Hashem in this world, and thereby causing a dilution of God's presence in the world. Um, the, uh, Rav Soloveitchik uh, commented at the time in which uh, some of the abortion debates were taking place in the early 1970s around the time of the issuance of the decision of Roe versus Wade which now of course has been overruled at least for the time being Rav Soloveitchik said to me it is something vulgar this clamor of liberals that abortion be permitted something vulgar from a Jewish law perspective you take an act in which you are destroying a potential future life that's developing beautifully in its mother's womb and you snuff out that life it's not something to be taken casually it's not something to be taken cavalierly so therefore it's very important to underscore that this is the starting point of any discussion regarding abortion now what is the nature of the prohibition there's an extensive discussion in the Sefer Nishma Savam by Rav Avram Sofer, also in Halacha Rafua by Dr. Avram Steinberg. They go through the various sources. The Nishma Savam points out the vast majority of rabbinic authorities in analyzing the Talmudic text have come to the conclusion that abortion is a biblical prohibition. The nature of the biblical prohibition is in dispute, but it is a biblical prohibition. There is a minority of opinions, such as the Birchas HaZevach, who say that it's only a rabbinical prohibition, but generally speaking, it's viewed as a biblical prohibition, or at least something which, as Rabbi Yosef says, is very likely a biblical prohibition, even if you take into account those sources who say it's a rabbinic prohibition. At the very least, a rabbinic prohibition it is. It has been alluded that there is a Gemara that quotes of Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Yishmael says that non-Jews 
are prohibited to perform an abortion even as a capital crime. Why is that? Because the Torah says, Shofek dama adam ba'adam damo If you split, if you shed blood inside of an individual, so then your blood shall be shed. What is the blood which is inside of an individual? Ezu adam shu be'adam. This is referring to a fetus that is in its mother's womb. So therefore we know that it's a capital crime for non-Jews. Mayor Simchami Devinsk goes further and says, you know what, it's a capital crime for Jews as well. It just happens that for various technical reasons, we're not put to death for it by an earthly court. But from the perspective of a heavenly court, this is Make Adam Yumas, this is uh, what the Torah refers to when it says that if you hit a person, if you whack, if you uh, assault and kill a person, you're going to die. So says the Meshachachma, this is Misa Bidei Shemayim. This is a death in the hands of heaven. So that is at least one opinion amongst the, the rabbinic authorities that it is something which incurs the divine death punish, punishment even for Jews. But Vavadi Yosef points out that the Pasuk in Parshish Mishpatim, we're going to read this Shabbos, says that if there are two men who are engaged in a fight and one of them strikes the wife of one of them and causes her to abort a fetus um, and she herself is not, is not killed, um, so then uh, it's not going to be the death penalty for the assailant because he didn't kill the woman, he only killed the fetus, so he has to pay a monetary fine. So he says that there is at least one opinion in the Gemara of Rabbi Nechunia ben Akana who says that even if a person only incurs the heavenly death punishment, that would mean that they would be, um, they would be exonerated from having to pay a monetary fine based on the principle of come mine. We have a principle that if you're liable for the death punishment, so then you do not pay a monetary fine. So this, according to Rabbi Nechunia ben Akana, applies even to a heavenly death punishment a de- heavenly death punishment and therefore says Rabbi Yosef it seems pretty clear that there would not be a capital offense in his opinion that a person would incur even the heavenly death penalty but nonetheless for Moshe Feinstein as has been mentioned by Rabbi Boyd and by Rabbi Feldman is of the opinion that it is an act of murder even for Jews it's considered to be an act of murder and we have to reckon with the fact that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was the preeminent halakhic authority certainly of uh, American Jewry probably the world during his lifetime, during the late part of the 20th century, even today, we very much rely upon the rulings of Ramosha Feinstein. You have to take very seriously. If Ramosha Feinstein says that it's considered to be an act of murder, any time that an abortion question reaches my desk, reaches a rabbinic authority's desk, so the starting point of the analysis is, hey, wait a second, according to Ramosha Feinstein, this could be considered to be an act of murder. Um, Ramosha proves it in part from the Ramah, because certainly Rav Chaim Soloveitchik's interpretation of the Rambam, with the Rambam based on a Mishnah in Maseches Olo, says that if a woman is being endangered by virtue of the child, the, womb, the fetus that's inside of his womb, that's coming of inside of her womb that's coming out, so then it's only permitted to kill the fetus, says the Rambam, when the fetus is endangering the life of the mother, because the fetus is considered to be like a rodif. Is considered to be like a pursuer. If it wouldn't be an act of murder, then you wouldn't need the rationale of saying that the only reason that you could kill the fetus is because the fetus is considered a pursuer. That's a rationale that allows you 
to kill somebody. It's not a rationale that's necessary if it will be a lesser type of an offense, even a lesser type of a biblical offense. So therefore, Rav Moshe Feinstein proves from there, also from Atosos in Sanhedrin, in Andaf Nuntes, which says that since we know that it is a punishable capital offense with respect to non-Jews, so how can it be permitted for Jews even when the child is threatening the mother's life, how can it be permitted? So Moshe Feinstein says, if with the Potosvos, wouldn't be starting off with the assumption that to the degree it would be prohibited for us, it would be an act of murder, then it wouldn't be a question, how can you perform this act even when the mother's life is in danger? If it's a lesser prohibition, of course, you can kill the fetus if the mother's life is in danger. And this comes to the conclusion that, in fact, it is prohibited for Jews as well, and the fact that the reason why we're allowed to kill the fetus when it's threatening the mother is either because it's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah of atzalus nefashas of pikuach nefesh to save the mother's life. We're allowed to override an isser, a prohibition, even a biblical prohibition of murder, um, if it is for the sake of a mitzvah, of saving a life. Or, secondly, and this is a, uh, this is a point which is generally assumed by most modern-day authorities, um, if the fetus is in fact threatening the mother's life, it's probably permitted for non-Jews as well. Probably permitted for non-Jews as well. This is relevant to the question that gets asked sometimes. Let's say a woman needs to perform an abortion because the fetus is threatening the mother's life. So do you have to use specifically a Jewish doctor or are you allowed to use a non-Jewish doctor as well? Maybe it's okay to use a Jewish doctor because the Jew is allowed to perform an abortion to save the mother's life. But maybe the non-Jew is not allowed to perform an abortion even to save the mother's life. So most authorities will say, no, in this particular case, we assume like the, like the approach of Tosfos that this could be permitted for non-Jews as well. And therefore using a non-Jewish doctor in that particular situation is probably, is probably okay. Is probably all right. Now, on the other uh, side of the spectrum is a Tosfos in Nida, in Masechus Nida, a different Tosfos, not the Tosfos in Sanhedrin, but Tosfos in Masechus Nida. In the course of a discussion over there, Tosfos seems to mention in passing that there's a possibility that one could take the approach that abortion is considered to be mutter. Tosfos uses the word mutter, actually 100% permissible. Already going back many centuries, the Chavos Yair, Rav, um, Rav Yair Bachrach, um, a 17th century uh, authority uh, from Germany, uh, said that, that you have to assume that the wording of Tosfos is not precise. Tosfos means that it's not a, a capital offense for which you would receive the death penalty. But the word mutter is not a precise wording. But Moshe Feinstein said, really, the word mutter, the word you saying permissible, is so incredibly reckless that it can't be that Tosfos actually said that. It must be it was a transcription error. Just so much was, uh, was uh, Moshe um, uh, bothered by the notion that, that there should even be the realm of a possibility or even a scintilla of a doubt of it being less than an act of murder. The Tosa said the word murder in such a context would be way too reckless and we can't um, assume that uh, that wording was even used um, as a, uh, some type of a shorthand. Uh, the word wouldn't have been used altogether. Similarly, there is a debate regarding a tshuva that was written by the Maharit. Rav Yosef Tarani is an early achron, early rabbinic authority, tremendously, tremendously respected. The Maharit would write something, he was a rabbinic authority in the 16th, uh, late 16th, early 17th century, lived in Greece. Um, he was considered migidole achronim. He's considered to be amongst the, the greatest, the most important of poskim. So people take what he says seriously. The Maharit has a tshuva in which he says that the offense 
of killing uh, a fetus is considered to be an isa chavala. It's considered to be an act of wounding. An act of wounding, the way that he phrases it, may be in the, the realm of murder, but he uses the, the terminology of act of wounding, and some say, yeah, that's what he meant. He meant it's only an act of wounding. It's not an act of murder, because he has another tshuva that was really only published as a, a two response away from this one. In the other tshuva, he takes a much more uh, relaxed position uh, regarding abortion in which he says that, that he doesn't think that, that it is a, a serious high-level uh, offense, at least not in the realm of a murder altogether. And he says that um, uh, certainly um, it is the parak pshita. He says that since it's a Gemara in Erchin, which talks about, this was alluded to by Rabbi Feldman, talks about a woman who was sentenced to death. A woman, excuse me, it's a Mishnah and a Gemara. The Gemara develops on the Mishnah, but thank you. It speaks about a woman who was sentenced to death, um, and we're going to get to the Gemara uh, in a second. And it says that the, you don't wait for the woman to give birth in order to kill her, even though if she's a pregnant woman and the fetus is going to be killed in the process. So the Gemara says, Pshita, the Gemara says, oh, this is sort of an obvious thing that you're not going to wait around. Gufahi. Because the fetus is a part of her child, is a part of her body. Um, so the, uh, so there's a question, how do you interpret that, that word pshita? Does it mean, oh, it's such a simple, obvious thing that of course you would perform an abortion, it's not so bad. So the Chavos Yor, of Yor Bachrach says, no, no, it, it means exactly the opposite. Pshita gufahi, he says that, that we need to say gufahi, only because the fetus is a part of her body. When she committed the capital offense, the, the fetus was part of uh, the body that committed the capital offense. It's also sentenced to death on some level. That's the reason, because since it's part of an extension of her body, that we're going to kill the fetus. Otherwise, of course, you wouldn't be allowed to kill the fetus. But the Ma'arit, in this particular tshuva, the Ma'arit says, no, he actually he, he deduces uh, the, the, the opposite inference from the word pshita, and he says uh, from the fact that it says pshita, he says that because of the fact of that, that um, it says pshita, we can derive that there is not even the slightest part, or the slightest concern that this would implicate murder. And as a result, he says that since we don't need to worry about it, therefore he says that you would be allowed to help a woman receive an abortion if it's a case where it would be necessary for the health of the mother. The, there's also a line in the Shubos of the Yavits of Yaakov Emden in which Yaakov Emden says that he thinks that even he's talking about a case where a woman was carrying a mamzer. She engaged in an illicit relationship and the child was a mamzer. It's a very strange tshuva in which he says that really since the woman should be put to death for the illicit relationship, so therefore you kill the child as well, even though the child wasn't even alive at the time that she committed the illicit relationship. But even though I have to tell you, Pretty much nobody holds like that tshuva. Rabbi Yashiv was asked, do we take into account a woman is carrying a mamzer as a reason for her to uh, perform an abortion? He says, He says, this doesn't require even a superficial analysis or examination. It's obvious that we don't hold that way. The Chavos Yar of Yar Bachrach, who is dealing with a similar question, also came to the same conclusion that we don't pass in that way, that we don't hold that way. But nonetheless, um, in the course of uh, this uh, tshuva by Rabbi Yaakov Emden, 
he says, If there is a tremendous need, not an illicit relationship situation, but any other kind of tremendous need that the mother has, then there might be room to be make them. And he says, an astonishing line, as long as the child has not begun stir, as long as the child, the uber, the fetus, has not shifted position and is not ready to actually be born, it sounds like even into the ninth month he would consider uh, some sort of a dispensation if there was a tremendous need. So Rav Moshe Feinstein says this maharit, this uh, second shuv of the maharit, that seems to indicate that we derive from the word pshita in the Gemara that um, you, that it's not really a capital offense at all was forged. He says it must be, it must be a forgery. There's a question about that because there was a Talmud of the Ma'arit who actually did publish that shuva in the name of his Rebbe. Um, but once again, I think that there was a moral message that Ramosha was conveying about the seriousness with which we have to take these types of, these types of issues. Um, in terms of how one acts upon this shuva of the Ma'arit, so the Shevet Alevi, uh, Rav Shmuel Bozner says, it doesn't mean even if you're going to take seriously that it might not be a complete act of murder per se, but it's still, you're taking out a potential life for the future. This act of wounding is not something that we would uh, permit as a matter of course. We don't simply say, oh, it's only a violation, only a prohibition of wounding, therefore we're going to permit it across the board. It means, he says, uh, that instead of requiring that it be an absolute sakana, that Rav Moshe has a, a, a lush and a very strong uh, phrase, he says it has to be karav levadei, to permit an abortion, it has to be a near certainty that the mother would die if you don't perform the abortion. So says Vashmur Vosna, maybe we can take at least uh, the wording of the Ma'arit, in terms of Tzarek to teach us that, that even if it's a suffix, even if it's a remote danger, but the doctors that tell us, Dr. Jacob looks at the, the baby and says, at the fetus and says, there is a, a reasonable risk that's out there, it might be a 1% risk, there's a reasonable risk that the mother's going to die as a result of this pregnancy. So he says, that's something we could take seriously. That would be a reason to allow an abortion, certainly in a, in a, in a case of, of, of that sort. Rabbi Yashiv took the wording of the Marit and said that even if you have a woman who is in dire physical straits herself, she has a terminal illness, she's going to die probably shortly after uh, the, uh, the, the abortion, um, even if we perform an abortion, but she'll be able to live a little bit longer. So he says, well, the Chayisha, for somebody who is a nefesh, somebody who's already a living human being, so they take precedence, even though it only means that we're going to extend her life a little bit longer. But again, we're talking about a situation where there is some sort of a threat to uh, the mother's life. What if we're not talking about where there is a threat to the mother's life, where it's simply that the, the mother can't take it, that it's going to uh, cause a tremendous psychological anguish. So Shlomo Zaman Orbach talks about that. If a woman's actually going to commit suicide, sometimes you have a woman who is uh, so mentally ill or distressed that she's going to commit suicide. So then, uh, in an extreme case, um, you would have to take that into account in terms of uh, the fetus uh, being a threat uh, to the mother's life. But what if the mother just uh, has, she has clinical depression, she's going to be tremendously depressed, it's going to just cause her to lose her mind, she's not going to commit suicide, but she's going to lose her mind. So here, uh, Shlomo Zalman and others say, you have to not be so hasty. 
Sometimes you can treat with medication a person's physical distress. Sometimes it will cause even greater psychological distress to the woman later on if she had the abortion and that's going to actually cause her to be in more dire psychological straits and you have to really work very carefully and very gingerly with the woman because it's very possible that she'll be better off if she is treated with proper medication, with proper treatment, with proper therapy and she'll be able to have the baby as well. You shouldn't be so hasty in these types of circumstances even though there is the tshuva of the Levushe Mordechai that we certainly do take into account that it's considered like high nefesh, it's considered like saving a person's life if a person is just going to have a complete mental breakdown and they'll never be able to recover from that mental breakdown. There is a tshuva of the Torah's chesed. Torah's chesed um, also is of the opinion uh, that uh, there is room to be lenient to allow an abortion if it's going to cause a tremendous physical impairment on the part of the mother, even if she doesn't die. He was dealing with a woman who had hearing issues and the doctors concluded that as a result of her having a child, um, if she would bring the embryo to term, so then she would end up losing her hearing altogether. She would become deaf. And he said that deafness can be such a debilitating condition that we can allow an abortion um, to prevent a case of, a case of deafness or relying upon all of these other authorities um, that Torah Chesed assumed that it was a biblical prohibition, uh, but nonetheless relying upon the authorities that it's not necessarily considered to be murder. Now, now, one other very interesting discussion that you have amongst the post-skim is what, it, what about if it's different stages of the pregnancy? Do we distinguish between different stages? So the Chabos Yor of Yor Bachwef suggested that maybe we find the Gemara um, in Yavamos that says that the first 40 days that a, uh, that a fetus is inside the mother's womb, the fetus is considered like Maya Bialma. It's considered to be mere water. It's considered to be more mere embryonic fluid, but it's not considered to be uh, any kind of a viable fetus at that point in time. So therefore, he says, maybe there's more room to be lenient within the first 40 days. And then he says, there's another Gemara that speaks in Nida, that speaks about Hukaruba, that, that there's some significance to the point in time, certain bodily reactions that take place, the point in time in which a woman's fetus becomes recognizable, which is generally, what the Gemara says, it's assumed to be after three months. So maybe there's more room to be lenient after three months, uh, up until three months, and not afterwards. So then after saying these uh, different gradations, the Kavos Yair says, I have a problem with this though. These are all Svaras Hakeris. These are all just kind of uh, logical arguments that are coming from my stomach. The Gemara doesn't say that for purposes of abortion we distinguish between less than 40 days, more than 40 days, less than 3 months, more than 3 months. He says, I have no right to come up with this on my, uh, on my own. But the problem is you published it in your tshuva. So once he published it in his tshuva, so everybody looked at the tshuva and they said, oh, look, Chavos distinguishes the Steichemet who gathered all of the different tshuvas of previous generations said, look in the Chavos he distinguishes between before 40 days, after 40 days. They didn't notice that that wasn't the maskara, that wasn't the final conclusion. But many authorities that take that seriously including the Achiezer of Chaim Moser, um, including um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the Torah Chesed uh, himself, take seriously uh, this, uh, uh, this time period, the Sri Deyesh, of Yaakov Yechiel Weinberg, said up until 40 days, uh, there's much more room um, uh, to be lenient. Now the truth is, most of the time that's not going to come up because usually when there's a problem with the pregnancy, a woman discovers that she's pregnant and she starts to have uh, real mental disturbances, starts to worry about the pregnancy, they discover there's a defect with the baby, the baby is going to be a Tay-Sachs baby, something like that. 
You're not going to discover that during the first 40 days. Shlomo Zalman said, yeah. Shlomo Zalman Albert said, you discover that during the first 40 days. He's also prepared to be makele, to perform an abortion of a Tay-Sex baby. But after 40 days, much, much um, more serious, he said, and you have to you'll be much more strict. This time period of three months has much less of a basis uh, to say hookah huba because it's recognizable to the outside. So what, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, the, the, the baby's no more viable in terms of if it would come out right now than if it was a day before three months. Very difficult to ascribe significance to three months. And yet, Bababadi Yosef ascribes tremendous significance. He says, oh, up until three months is not even going to be a capital offense for non-Jews. It's only after three months, uh, based on these other sources, based on the suggestion that really germinated with the with, with the Chavasyar, he's prepared to say that if you did have a Sakana, if you did have a Sakana, even though it's a not a Sakana Shomisa, it is um, a, a, not going to cause death to the mother, but it's going to cause some other medical ailment or condition to the mother. So he felt um, that, that you could be makele, lenient, up until three months, and he had the classical Rabbi Yosef approach. Well, Sasafek, a fake faker. So Safek, there's a doubt that maybe it's only a prohibition uh, that's a rabbinic, like the Birchah Sezevach says. And even if you assume that it's a biblical prohibition, maybe up until the first three months it's only rabbinic. So uh, kind of a Bavavayu Yosef uh, type of Sveik uh, Sveikah. And he says on this basis, if you would assume, everyone uh, says this, if you would assume that it's only a rabbinic prohibition, so says that the Nishma Savam, so then for sure there would be more wiggle room, more uh, situations, more scenarios where one could be lenient or to, um, to, allow, uh, to allow an abortion in those types, uh, in those types of, of cases. Now, I have to tell you that uh, this gives you sort of the basic you know, framework, it gives you sort of the basic landscape that a posek has to deal with. What a posek knows is uh, that it's probably a biblical prohibition. What Posek knows is that there is a strong spiritual uh, preference from the perspective of halacha that uh, we should not destroy the handiwork of a god, and that's considered to be a very bad thing to do. What the Posek knows as well is that if the woman's life is in danger, even if it's not necessarily a clear danger, it might be a little bit of a remote danger, but the doctor says you've got to take it seriously, so that's something you have to take seriously. I think that many, many Poskim would allow abortions when they have any kind of inkling, you know, from a responsible doctor. You have to, you know, get your, your opinions and make sure you have a good doctor. Um, but from a responsible doctor that the mother's life is in danger, certainly nobody wants to mess around with that. The mother's life certainly takes precedence. That's the mission in Olos, the Ramam. The mother's life certainly takes precedence over, um, over the fetus. When you're dealing with these other types of situations, very, very, very difficult. In the Mamzeris case, so I have to tell you something, that if you had somebody who took this very seriously, or oh, I'm carrying an illegitimate child, I work on a Besden. We have so many cases that come to us where somebody thinks that they're illegitimate because their mother got remarried to their father without receiving a get from the first husband and they assume they must be illegitimate. They come to the best and what do you know? We're able to find some sort of a head. We're able to find some sort of leading. Who says? A woman knows that she committed an illicit relationship. If she's living with her husband at home, even if she knows that her lover, her paramour, is the one who gave birth to the baby, the halakha doesn't care about that. The halakha says, Mobilos that most of we assume that the baby is coming from your uh, the, the husband that you're living with. You don't have to do any DNA tests or anything of that sort. For, for, for Yashiv as a chuva, it's forbidden to do a DNA test under those under those circumstances. We assume that the child is legitimate. Don't don't jump to you. It's not you're the purview of a woman carrying a baby to decide the baby is illegitimate. I had a high school baby. 
who had told us that he just came from a bar mitzvah that was the most wonderful, sympathetic, um, and, and, and blessed and joyous bar mitzvah that he ever attended in his life. And he told us why. He said that this was a family he wasn't necessarily so close to, but they lived in his community. And uh, they, he was the rabbi that they knew. And uh, they, the women got pregnant, and they wanted to terminate the pregnancy. A Jewish couple, they wanted to terminate the pregnancy. They were not an observing couple. They were not an observing couple couple, but they knew him. They wanted to terminate the pregnancy. Why did they want to terminate the pregnancy? Because they figured out the child was conceived on Yom Kippur. The child was conceived on Yom Kippur. How could they bring a child into the world who was conceived on Yom Kippur? So he met with them and he was trying to figure out he, nothing that he could say could swap them, could mollify them that, that they shouldn't abort this child. Finally he said, listen, there's, your wife, there's a, there's a woman, does she ever go, do you ever go to the mikvah? And she said, mikvah? What's a mikvah? I don't go to mikvah. What do you mean? She says, so you're constantly having relations when the woman's a neither. That's a much, much worse transgression than having relations on Yom Kippur. He said, oh, really? Us? Oh, it's not so bad after all. So they had, they had the child and then 13 years later they invited him to attend the bar mitzvah he said it's the most joyous bar mitzvah that he ever attended in his life that really you try, try to do you work with people to try to really salvage the pregnancy I had a case very tragic case a couple was getting married and uh, they weren't so careful but before marriage people slip sometimes we have a principle in Allah we don't want people to slip it happens okay do chuba. but as a result the woman got pregnant she was pregnant and they were getting married I know shotgun wedding they were going to get married anyway but it was a tremendous embarrassment to her that she'd be walking down the chuppah you know with a big belly everybody would see that she's pregnant so she terminated the pregnancy she terminated the pregnancy so she shouldn't be pre- 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 she shouldn't be pregnant at her own wedding Ten years later, they come to me and they're crying to me. They can't have a child. They can't have a child. They were not able to conceive again. With all of the different um, artificial um, technologies that we have today um, to to, to help people have have children, they were not able, they were not able, not through IVF, they just weren't able to conceive. Impossible. Um, So tell people, you know how difficult it is for so many couples to to just have a child and uh, they have to resort to to all kinds of uh, of fertility treatments. You're going to hear later today from Rabbi Dr. Zalman Levine how difficult it is sometimes just to be able to have a child. What a beautiful thing is, don't terminate a pregnancy so quickly. Don't terminate. Even the Tzitz Eliezer, the Tzitz Eliezer came up with a tremendous Kiddush, a tremendous leniency that he said, sometimes you don't find out that you're carrying a Tay-Sex child that's going to die within a few years until later in the pregnancy so he was lenient to allow termination of a pregnancy up until seven months up until seven months of pregnancy but Moshe Feinstein famously said Shari Le Mari he lost his mind God should forgive him uh, for such a um, uh, for, 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 for such a demarcation line uh, we had the earlier authorities who spoke about 40 days three months who, who, who came up with seven months but he came up with this idea of viability, similar to sort of the Roe versus Wade determination that it becomes more severe when if the child would be born right then and there, the child could possibly be uh, viable. So he said up until whatever that point is, he was prepared to uh, be lenient uh, with respect to, to say, Tay-Sex baby. So that's the Tzitz Eliezer. But even the Tzitz Eliezer said, if you're dealing with what you sometimes have in general society, that a couple says, oh, we just can't handle it right now. This was an unwanted pregnancy financially, economically. We're not going to be able to deal with having a baby under these circumstances. So nobody, there's no responsible post who would say, even within the first 40 days, to, have a, to, to perform an abortion even under those circumstances. He's talking about cases of rape. It's a big dispensation. The Shlomo Zalman Orba came up with, he said, oh, if it's a case of rape, so I'll allow for the after-morning pill. The after morning pill, not even the first 40 days, the after morning pill. A woman knows that she was raped, so within 72 hours after she had, the, after the rape occurred, she could take uh, the necessary pills, take uh, the necessary treatments, so that there won't be fertilization, because it's certainly less of a prohibition 
um, when one simply prevents uh, the fertilization from occurring, no, the, the Chavos Yair said that the, the, he felt that the nature of the prohibition of abortion is wasting one's seed. Wasting one's seed. So we generally assume it's certainly more than that. It's more than wasting one's seed. It's uh, perhaps, uh, you could say, like the Marit, maybe it's an Isser, Isser Chavala, but at the very least, it's, uh, it certainly comes into that category of uh, preventing a, a viable child from coming into the world. So he says that, that within the first 72 hours was just a question of preventing fertilization. So then, after a case of rape, that would be, uh, that would be permitted. Um, I had a case during COVID where there was a couple in my community, they called me up, that the woman got pregnant. She was pregnant, there was a child, a couple, second child, something like that, and she's carrying this fetus, and she has sort of mental distress issues, certain psychological issues, she's suffering from depression, and she just was besides herself because it's just so difficult. It was the early stages of COVID, so worried about getting sick, so worried about transmitting COVID to the baby, uh, so worried uh, about uh, just bringing the baby into a, a world in which uh, there is uh, this uh, tremendous pandemic that's going on. In the worst way, she was just uh, beyond um, any kind of consolation. She desperately needed to have uh, an abortion. And uh, they scheduled an appointment actually for her to perform an abortion because they did a little bit of reading. They did a little bit of reading on their own into the sources. They saw it's not as bad prior to three months as after three months. So therefore, her three-month uh, period was coming up and she wanted to make sure to perform the abortion before the three months. And she called me up. The husband told her, why don't you call speak to Rabbi Reese? See what Rabbi Reese has to say about this. So I said to her, I said, listen, number one, it's true, it's COVID and a lot of people are suffering and so forth. But is it this poor baby's fault that he happens to have gotten conceived during COVID? Why should she suffer? Why should this baby lose out on a, a beautiful, wonderful, you know, life in this world just because the baby had the bad luck uh, to be conceived during COVID? And I said something else. I said, I got to tell you that this, this three-month demarcation line is very difficult to understand. If it would be permissible for you to have the abortion, you could have it after three months too. You can take a little while, you can see how you're feeling, you can, you know, uh, see if things can, might possibly get a little bit better. It doesn't have to be, you know, so desperate, it doesn't have to be so urgent. You know, maybe, you know, think about it a little bit to see, you know, whether you can, you can manage. It's such a beautiful thing to bring a baby into this world. So then the husband contacted me, he said, oh, of all the conversations that his wife had, this was the most reassuring. When I told her, oh, you know, it's possible that we might be able to be lenient even after three months. That was like the greatest thing. It was like, you know, when one of my sisters got married, she wasn't sure whether to marry the guy. And my father said to her, don't worry, if it doesn't work out, you can always get a get. And she said, oh, that was like the most reassuring for her. That's, that's what caused her to get married. It was wonderful. And that Baruch Hashem happily married. It's great. You know? um, so uh, so I, gave her, I gave her that reassurance. Six months, six months later, I get a little, you know, text, uh, my email with a beautiful picture of the, uh, the father holding on to, to his new baby, you know, and I, uh, and saying, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, and I get sent back, uh, you know, warm, warm Mazel Tov wishes. Uh, that's our job, really, first and foremost, uh, to, to help the council, the couples, to see uh, if there's a way that they can, you know, work through the issues, to, to bring uh, a child into the world. It's a reassurance. It's a tremendous reassurance that Halakha says that a mother doesn't have to, doesn't have to die. doesn't have to die um, if the fetus is threatening her life. There's a reassurance that sometimes in, in dire circumstances, depression, other types of dire circumstances, uh, or certainly early stages of, of pregnancy, or, or, or there, there, there's more room to be lenient in uh, difficult, difficult, difficult cases. Um, uh, that 
that's sort of a crutch uh, that uh, one, as a posseg, may need to rely upon in very, very difficult situations. But fundamentally, the halakhic approach is that we try to save a pregnancy. Try to save a pregnancy. Consider every single baby to be a beautiful baby that's born into the world. Some people, they, I remember we had one, one pregnancy where there was a, a concern, there was something on the sonogram that indicated that, that, that there was a possibility that maybe the child would be a Down syndrome child, and they wanted us to go for amniocentesis. Um, and my wife and I discussed it with each other, and we said to each other, what's the point? Go to amniocentesis and it'll be real. Maybe the child does have Down syndrome, so we'll have the baby anyway. We'll have the baby anyway. We have an hour block, a couple of families that have their children with Down syndrome, beautiful, beautiful, wonderful babies, wonderful babies that are flourishing nowadays. But what you can do, you know, the education that you can provide to children who have, you know, this malady, they can live almost very normal lives. You know, we have someone in our community grew up, got married to another Down syndrome girl, um, they have a happy a happy marriage together. Um, I said we're not we're not going to go for it. But Baruch Hashem, everything everything worked out. We got a we 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 got a bracha at the time from from Rabbi Rabbi Sedemer. Baruch Hashem, I'm sure I'm sure that helped. Um, but the um, um, uh, but the reality is that uh, every single child is, is beautiful. Every single Jewish life is uh, is very very beautiful. And um, the um, and every single posseg has to really start with that sense of the tremendous severity of uh, the prohibition, the tremendous uh, gravity of the situation, the tremendous beauty of every single Jewish life, and of course the sanctity of uh, the mother's life as well, and work with all of those uh, factors uh, together. Um, and uh, I just uh, will end with, with a bracha that uh, we should all be zoka to um, celebrate only healthy and successful pregnancies in all of our families. Um, we will now be going out for lunch and reconvening back here at 12.05 for a panel on genetic testing. Um, just to remind everyone, we do, uh, there's a 5% discount to the farm sale, which is in Belfer Hall, the tall building. Um, show your sticker ID if you want to go now during lunch or after um, the conference. And um, there's many books from the speakers that are featured in this farm sale. You can go check it out. Speakers are available for any questions now if you would like. Uh, 12.05, back in this room. And everyone on the board, if you can please come to the front of the room. Brunch. Brunch is in the lobby, uh, right outside this room. Yeah, let's take this off. Yeah. Are we taking this off? What? Are we removing this? Can we just yeah. this inside? Yeah. Is it stapled in there? Staple. Yeah, it was some. Yeah, it's fine. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're going two down. It's fine.
reason, like, thumbs up. There we go. Oh, that was wild, dude. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was weird. Oh, so, that was Yvonne, help me move this. Sorry? Sorry, you're in the picture.